Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. Whatever type of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you a shot of inspiration by picking the brains of all kinds of professional writers about writing and the writing life. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and in this episode, I talk to copywriter Nick Parker about tone of voice, storytelling, and how to explain things clearly. In the meantime, I just wanted to give a big shout out to Liat, Sasha, Brian, Ricky, Matthew, and Leslie for your comments and reviews. Your support is what keeps this podcast going. And to other listeners out there, if you enjoy the show, please, please do leave a review wherever you listen, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, or another platform. Now, Let's get straight to the interview. So, Nick, you are founder of That Explains Things, an agency that helps organisations, and I quote, find your voice, tell your stories and explain your things. I'd like to explore each of those things in turn, starting with the first one, tone of voice. Okay. Why do companies find nailing tone of voice so hard? Why is it something that a brand may need help finding? So I guess if you think about why why it works, like when, when a tone of voice is really working, what does that do for a brand? You know, the idea that if you have a distinctive voice, you stand out and you sort of, you're different from your competitors and then it's really consistent. So, you know, it's all just part of how a brand works. I think those are the reasons it's hard as well. It's hard because not every brand is distinctive. It's hard because what works about a brand maybe visually or in attitude, you know, their brand values and what have you, it can be not immediately obvious what that might look like in writing. You know, if you say your brand is sort of fun and energetic, um, it's not immediately obviously what energetic might look like in writing. You have to sort of explore that. And people might have different yes. ideas yeah. about that. And I think there's an interesting thing about writing where sometimes the techniques in like the detail of the techniques in writing that help you capture something are a bit counterintuitive so in fact energy is a good example because writing that feels energetic if you were not thinking about it you might think well we'll just chuck loads of adjectives and exclamation marks at it and that will sound energetic won't it actually no that will sound like a sort of mental dog (laughs) <laughs> um, and sort of, you know, sort of would be quite annoying. And we're actually writing that feels like it's got a real snap and energy to it is something about the pace and the rhythm and a kind of close ear to that. And that's quite a writerly skill. So you have to sort of, so first of all, there's that idea of like, okay, how can we capture this? What specifically does that mean for writing? Um, and then there is like, what, like, so okay, how do we do it? And then how do we do it? You know, it might be all very well to get your best copywriters doing it or you know if you're a bigger business you pay your agencies to do it but then how do we get you know the people in internal comms or the people in HR or the you know the lawyers like how do you then get everyone else getting a bit of that into their writing? You have um, preempted one of my questions which is exactly that how do you stop that that beautiful tone of voice guidelines set of guidelines that has been thought about and sweated over and then it ends up dying in some corner of the intranet. <laughs> so I do think there's a thing about, you know, there's a sort of corporate tendency generally, like we've done the strategy, so now it's done. Yes. Like, well, no, it's not. You've just sort of sorted out your thinking. It's, like, it's the sort of equivalent of going, right, well, humans need to eat and we've had a meal so there, we've sorted. It's like, no, you probably need to do that three times a day, every day for the rest of your life. 
And I think this is like that is totally the equivalent of sort of any form of meaningful creative endeavour, particularly in a larger business. You've got a tone of voice, you've written it down, you just need to get it out there. And that's going to be a mix of... <laughs> yeah, there we are. Well, it's a PDF, so isn't that sorted? <laughs> you know, you need some workshops, you need to get people rolling up their sleeves and thinking and doing the writing. You need people like you have, you know, in any... There'll be a brand person who's in charge of... You know, they'll be running the brand clinics every week going, you know, that's not compliant and this isn't our logo and blah, blah, blah. You need somebody whose job it is to do that for the words. Um, And you just need a sort of sense of ongoing enthusiasm. I do think there's a thing about writing that it's quite a solitary activity. Um, most of the things in businesses get done by committee or get done in meetings. Writing is the one thing you don't want to yes. do by committee. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we do it by ourselves. It's us on the screen and we tap away. And even the idea of turning to the person next to you and going, so I've written this thing, can I just read it to you and see what, see what you think? Um, that can be quite a bold thing to do in writing. So I guess to answer your question, there's various things tactical things like do some workshops have a person with like tone of voice in their job title but just that be a culture that takes writing seriously or keeps it present in the just in the same way that you know some organizations are very good at running meetings you know and it's a sort of you know they teach themselves how to do it and they have good practice and you can go to a meeting with them and they're really efficient and blah 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 do the same for writing can you Tell me a little bit about your process for helping a brand nail its tone of voice. Um, so, if you'd have asked me that a year or so ago, I wouldn't really have been able to answer. Uh, but over the last year, I have, well, I've basically I've created a product called Voicebox, which was an attempt to think, like, I heard quite a lot, even from other writers and other agencies who I thought, would you know be thinking about this a lot that tone of voice seemed to be a bit of a dark art and so I just thought how can we like how can we make this as simple as possible and sort of lay it all out so people can really get what was going on um so I've made this thing called voice box which is a sort of method in a box for helping people define the tone of voice and broadly speaking that is the process that I use so I start by saying I think there are 11 what I call primary voices. So like the primary colours, like the sort of the foundational writing styles, if you like. How did you land Um, on 11? um, I should pretend that there was a highly scientific process. Really what I did is I just looked at hundreds and hundreds of brands who are doing interesting things with language and grouped them into what I thought was, so what's the minimum amount of useful, distinctive themes that you can sort of work with practically. So like, so there is the simplifier, the fire starter, the storyteller, the warm friend, and like, so there's sort of 11 of these distinctive types. And I think it's just really helpful. I found it really helpful with my clients to start with those 11 voices, which helps give people a sense of what are all the options. And then through a process of narrowing it down, like well, maybe we're a bit of that one and a lot of that one. And can we mix them together and what might that look like? Um, so if I'm working with a client, you know, I'll sort of, I will facilitate that. If you just 
buy voice box yourself off the shelf and do it like it's full of like there's a sort of cards and games and exercises to help you work out which of these voices are appropriate for our brand and then how do we blend them together and how do we just not you know not in a formulaic way there's not you know it's not an exact science 47% of this 12% of that you know how do you how do you blend them together in a way that brings to life what it is about your brand that you'd like to sort of express in your voice and then there's just loads of books of practical writing exercises and tips so you know if your voice is the warm friend how do you do that you know what is it what writing exercises can you do to make your writing feel warm and friendly um so that i mean that's sort of that's how i look at it because i think there's what i've realized over the years is it's one thing to help people find a creative direction that feels theirs it's actually extremely helpful for people to also see what they're not doing absolutely um so we're going to commit to this energetic voice which means we're not all these other voices and actually that just helps people see how it all fits together because writing is so such an amorphous thing um and i do think like in a way so back to that corporate culture thing um we are so for instance we're all very well versed in the language of project management like chances are we didn't train as project managers but by just being around how businesses work you pick up a load of stuff about you know what are the actions what are the next steps you know is there a gantt chart all of this stuff like businesses get very good at talking about particular things um businesses are very bad at talking about writing and language so, absolutely and whenever i've done tone of voice workshops with clients what i feel they mo- most need help on is articulating yes. tone of voice yeah yeah um and i had a lovely moment actually in a workshop a couple of weeks ago where i mean you might well have experienced this you'll be running a workshop with a team and the senior person or the ceo will come in the room and give their two penneth of advice which often used to be something like well just don't make it fluffy <laughs> or something that sort of expressed a kind of fear usually um i was running a voice box based workshop the other week and so i'd got these 11 voices on stuck on the wall and the ceo of this company came in and i was sort of watching him thinking you know he just looks like he could really derail this the group are really getting somewhere what's he going to say and he walked up and down the wall and he came over to me and he went 20% energizer 50% simplify or like something like that he just sort of named named the two voices uh and left and i thought that's it that's brilliant now he's got a way of articulating what it is he wants to the voice to do um which is made him really comfortable and that's it he's had his input and it's exactly that thing is like just having a language to talk about this can you give me some examples of companies that you think are really successfully used term of voice I think at the moment um Oatly are really interesting so they're the oat milk it's not milk it's whatever it is uh, it's oat not milk um they're doing a really interesting thing because they've got the same playful thing that Innocent had but they're using it as a way to sneak in actually quite hard-edged political messages um so they play this very low sla- low status oh we're the fool kind of thing but actually they're then you turn around the carton and they're talking about 
why I don't food manufacturers uh, publish their carbon footprint. Or and I think there's an interesting strain of brands. So Oatly, Tony Chocolonely, the Dutch chocolate manufacturers. Um, there is a toilet paper company called Who Gives a Crap. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's people like that who are doing something really interesting where they're taking a very playful childish voice and they're also doing something quite politically aware. And the way that they're managing to get those two things going in the voice at the same time, I just think is a really fascinating thing. An example there, I think, of where tone of voice and brand values yes. meet. Yes, yes, And I think like it's no coincidence that brands who are really good at it are tend to be a certain size. Like They're still small enough to be really coherently built around a clear mission and their voice is just an expression of something that genuinely comes from quite deep within them. So what about the massive global conglomerate or the investment bank? How how do how do they deal so, with tone of voice? So I think that's interesting. I think there's a thing about so two of the voices in Voicebox, one of them is the warm friend and one is the neutralizer. And so the neutralizer I would say is gov.uk. You go on there and it is completely neutral. There is no opinion, there is no personality, and that is very deliberate. Um, and actually, it works brilliantly for the, you know, it's, it must be incredibly hard to get that voice consistent across thousands and thousands of pages, what is presumably dozens and dozens of writers. Um, but it works really effectively for them. And they just really run with the idea that tone of voice isn't about being distinctive or getting attention. It's just about doing that job really, really well. And I do think there are lots of big brands for whom that is enough. Like, if you are the sort of utility that nobody really cares about, uh, even though you would desperately want your customers to care deeply about their car insurance or whatever it is, just, like, get that voice really right. And I wonder, like, quite often I think the opportunity is uh, not so much that your voice is distinctive, it's just that you bother to get it into all the little nooks and crannies. So, you know, um, I'm thinking there is an American insurance company called Lemonade. I don't know if you know Lemonade. Um, Interesting name for an insurance yeah, company. Yeah, like, like, great name, quite different. They have what I would say is a sort of simplifier voice. Um, it's very clear. It's very natural. It's quite like quite startupy, sort of Silicon Valley. Like most most of those tech startups have a sort of similar. It's very light. It's very friendly, and there's a sort of cleanness to it. Um, not massively distinctive. Nice for an insurance company, but their big thing is they have taken the insurance policy itself and completely rebuilt it from the ground up. So the policies policies itself is just really clean, really natural, really easy to read. Um, and uses these lovely real-life exam- real examples. So, you know, there are certain exemptions. For instance, my dog ate it. Uh, I spilt my tea on it. I will... And it's so it's taking the idea of exemptions and just bringing it to life a little bit. You might read the policy and you wouldn't think that is massively distinctive. The distinctive thing is you've never read an insurance policy like it in your life. Um so it's, it's not so much the voice, it's where they commit to doing it, um, I think is probably a way that if you're, in a, you're a massive corporation, there's a, like there's something you can do that sets you apart. Having the consistency yeah. to have that voice yeah. throughout. 
having that consistency and having that, like, just the commitment to going, okay, so we, you know, writing the terms and conditions yeah. means we've got to get the lawyers on board, we've got to start this process early. Um, I think, you know, part of all, part of what brands are doing is that demonstrating that you have thought hard about what you do, you know, because if you've thought hard about it, the chances are you have thought hard about all the things that I want as a customer, blah, blah, blah. And like, so just demonstrating we've cared about all the little details in writing is a way of just showing that you're quality. Hi there, Claire here. Is this episode inspiring you to be a better writer? If so, visit dorisandberti.com for show notes, past episodes, a wealth of writing tips, and to claim your copy of my free ebook, The 200 Writing Tips That'll Get You Writing Like a Pro. And if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Now, back to the interview. I want to move on to storytelling. Okay. What is the, this big thing about storytelling in business? Why, God, are businesses, why, right? why are businesses obsessed with it? Why does it matter? Uh, it's funny that, isn't it? So I reckon I have been predicting the death of storytelling for about <laughs> 10 years. Like, and yet it's still... And, you know, you think, oh, no, we've had peak storytelling, and then somebody else will call you up and say, you know, we really need some stories. Um, I think, like, at heart storytelling like we are storytelling animals obviously like it is just how we communicate information in fact I mean, in fact last night my wife introduced me to uh is it called the repair shop so it's bbc like it's it's like if antiques roadshow did tattoo fixers <laughs> so um there's the re- repair shop which is like a lovely hipster um, everybody's got big beards and leather aprons and they repair things and uh, people bring in treasured heirlooms that are broken and um, the repair shop repairs them and you watch this lovingly shot, you know, as they sort of file the thing down and remove the rust and repair the clock and all that. It's so beautiful. Um, and my wife was like, you know, every object they th- they bring in... I think I don't care. That's just a pair of wire cutters. <laughs> like, why could I possibly? And then, as soon as they tell the story, I'm totally invested. And it's like that's just it, isn't it? We cannot help whatever the thing is. If there's a story we want to listen to, it we cannot help but get invested in the characters, in the whatever it is, in seeing how it turns out. And that is just absolute gold dust because if what you want is to get people's attention or to engage people emotionally, it's sort of like, it just always works. How do you make it work? What are the ingredients of a, a good story? Uh, I So I think partly there's just a basic, like, have you actually got a story to tell? Like, I do find like that is a step you go through. Hello, yes, uh, we feel like we need some storytelling. Right, great. Have you got any stories? No. <laughs> just make some up. Right, so <laughs> should, we, should we go find some then? Um I think for business, so you know, if you were if you were talking to a screenwriter, they would talk about um, well, you need characters and you need action and conflict. You need some peril. Um, you need. I, I did some work with John York, who wrote a lovely book about storytelling called Into the Woods. You know, and he talks about the five act structure. Uh, you know, and if you watch reality TV, we'll take that same arc of like, here's a character, they go out on a journey, they encounter difficulties along the way. He says in TV, um, 
the bit before the adverts uh, at part three of four is known as the oh shit moment because that is when everything always goes wrong because then you have a sort of redemptive climax. So I do think there's a thing about probably the big things that, you know, not just that you have to sort of respect that shapes have a story and you'll need characters and you need action. For businesses, I think there's a thing about you are going to have to show probably that you got things wrong or you don't know the didn't know the answers or you know things got a bit sticky um how do clients feel when you say that uh it can really vary i mean i'm sure you you know that you show strength by showing your vulnerability um case studies are always the place where this is a real testing ground i think you know oh we should tell a story that you know that would be really interesting uh, obviously we don't want to say that um <laughs> Like we just want to say that, like we. So the standard case study goes: you know, client came to us with a problem, we diagnosed the problem and fixed it brilliantly. The end. It's like that's not a story. Mm-hmm. It's not a story. Um, so that you know, you've got it. Like so, maybe what did you get wrong? Uh, when didn't you fix it? How tricky was the process? Also remembering, as a business, you're not the hero of your story. Like your client is, or the product is, or your customer is. It's never you. Um, and I think, like, so philosophically almost, I'm interested in, I think, quite often businesses think of themselves, when they think of story, they think of Hollywood blockbusters. You know, this is an action spectacular with great special effects. We're the hero. Most businesses, their stories are much more like soap operas. Like, you know, it's recurring themes. It's a revolving cast of characters. We've got short memories. Like dramatic things happen, there are murders and affairs and um, trauma and tragedy, and then the next week it's all forgotten. Um, that is much more, I think, like how storytelling works in business. Um, but I say those basics, like, so who are your characters? Remember, it's probably not you. Uh, look for the, like, where is the drama or the tension? And remember, that's got to show probably some vulnerability or humility from you as the business. And like getting out of the abstract, making it about the people, you know, so who were the team, what were they doing? Right. I feel I spend my life in a war against abstraction. Yeah. I think that's the biggest challenge people yes. face when trying to communicate anything. Yeah. Everything seems to become incredibly abstract in business. Yeah, yeah. Because And that idea that, you know, it needs to be abstract because we want it to be universal and to not take that. You know, like you sit in a meeting with them and they'll want it to be abstract. They'll go home and they'll watch, you know, Netflix and they will see themselves in a story about vampires or space or, you know, three mothers who become bank robbers or whatever it is. And you get, you know, in the particular is the universal. Like, let's go for that. Yeah, that's very true. The war against abstraction. Yes. (laughs) Finally, explain your things. What's the secret to explaining something without dumbing down? Oh, without dumbing down. Because that's the biggest objection I always face. Yeah. And I think every copywriter always faces. Yes. So I I should probably start by saying the reason that that I call my company that explains things is because I think explaining is an underappreciated art form. I think quite often the focus goes on like persuading yeah. or inspiring. Like actually, the most persuasive thing you can often do is just explain a thing really well. 
It's really tricky to say. So what makes it what makes a good explanation right? I think there is a thing about finding the right place to start. Um, so an example of that would be uh, I worked with a bank a while back who said they were having real difficulty explaining to their customers how offset mortgages worked. So, you know, the sort of mortgage where you, you have a savings account. Here, it, I'm going to now fail to explain what an offset <laughs> mortgage is. So you, you've got a, a, a savings account that offsets the interest in your um, mortgage account and blah, 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 and, you know, who might this be good for? And, what. and so they were saying they're having real difficulty explaining how an offset mortgage worked. Um, and the more we looked at it, uh, the more we realised that was because most customers didn't really understand how a mortgage worked. So actually what you have to do is explain what a mortgage is and then an offset mortgage just falls really naturally into place. I think that happens a lot, that we focus on trying to explain this thing over here and the reason it's difficult is because actually you need to start over there. Um, and then it's like a lot of it is around the abstraction thing of just it would be really helpful, it's usually really helpful to break things down into very specific moments. So in fact, back to lemonade i wish i had it to read here you know when they talk about certain exclusions then going you know that's so we won't cover that if you left it on the bus uh if your radiator leaked on it or if your dog ate it right, i can imagine what the legal language would look like yeah but it would be so abstract that you wouldn't actually be able to relate to it yes um, and I always, the, one of the examples I always remember about this, because I remember seeing it since I was a very little kid, is on bus tickets and train tickets, it's saying non-transferable. I was 25 before I realised that non-transferable means you can't give this to somebody else to use when you've finished with it. Thank you, I never knew either. There you go. Um, like, so it's the non-transferable problem, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, what does that really mean? Yeah. And that because of the fear of making it sound Mickey Mouse, uh, you end up with nobody understanding it. So yeah, find, like finding the right place to start, making things real and concrete and specific. I think there is a sort of magic to being able to synthesize, to be able to see the themes in things. You know, so often you can sort of be faced with, you know, uh, there are twenty four bullet points, and your brain freezes. And actually, if you go, well, you know, there's three broad themes here, and under each one, like, I do think that. Like the explaining art lies somewhere in that skill of being able to, to take a blob of stuff and go, oh no, really what we've got is three steps. Or, you know, an if little if-then sort of cascading thing um, and just making that really obvious. The dumbing down thing is fascinating, isn't it? Because we don't... Like, if you think of the tube map, so Harry Beck's design of the tube map, that is the tube map that we all know, that, you know, it's not... This isn't really how the lines run. They're all squared off and it only works at some diagonals. You never look at that and think, well, that map's dumbed down. <laughs> like, it's a great it's a great explanation that really helps you use the tube. And, and it so, takes a lot of work yeah, to yeah, make yeah, something yeah, yeah. that simple. Yeah, it's the... Who is it? Is it John Mader who wrote a lovely book? Well, he wrote a book about simplicity and he had ten rules of simplicity, which I always think that's too many rules for a book yes, about simplicity. three at most. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but he talks about the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity. And that's exactly what it is. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's like make it like the tube map. Go for that elegance. It's not dumbed down. It's elegant. Um, which is like, it's <laughs> it's just another way of saying simple. But it sounds more intellectually sophisticated. So clients like it. 
It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Let's make this elegant. Oh, that's very good. Yes, we we are elegant, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to we should simplify this. Yeah. Oh, I'm a bit worried we're leaving out some detail. Nick, it's been very entertaining and illuminating talking to you. Total um, pleasure. Can I put you through our quickfire round before we yes. sign off? Yes, yes. And this is all about your own habits and processes as a writer yourself. So first of all, what fuels your writing? Coffee, tea or something stronger? Um, coffee. <laughs> I I really enjoy the fact, like about, about two years ago, I used to have uh, coffee with milk. Uh, and then suddenly about two years ago, I've started having black coffee. I'm just really pleased that I'm now the sort of person who drinks black coffee. I don't know why. this sort More of, elegant. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> and also like easier when you're out to just go, no, no milk. Um, yeah, so lots of black coffee. When do you like to write? Are you a lark or an owl? I am neither. I don't really have... Like, I've always hoped I would discover like that moment where I could go, oh, right, no, if I get up early, I'll be at my best. Or, you know, people are going, you know, I don't even bother writing until the afternoon because I know I'm really good then. I just no rhythm at all. None at all. Hopeless. Are you a planner or a plunger? Do you draft a detailed outline or do you dive right in? That's an interesting question. So I think I I start with, I have this little process of thinking, what shape is this job? And I can sort of see it in my head. I remember hearing Douglas Adams interviewed about one of his books and he was like, I can see it in my head, it's L-shaped. I was like, I know exactly what he means. That sounds slightly synesthetic yes, to me. Yes, yeah, I think it is. And so I have a sense in my head of what shape this job is. And once I can see that, I know what needs to happen. Because some jobs are plunging quickly and deeply and then walk away for a week. Other jobs are meticulously chip away at this bit by bit. Other jobs are do the strategy, like check that twice and then fill in the blanks. So again, like no rhythm to it, actually. But there's a sort of... You the, save uh, all the rhythm for the writing. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's what it is. Would you describe your desk as clear or cluttered? Again, uh, <laughs> it's sort of somewhere in between. <laughs> I need to feel like things are organised. But um, you, would, you would probably look at my desk and go, well, it doesn't seem very organised to me. Uh, I don't like... It's a sort of elegance thing don't like lots of dead things lying around. So redundant piles of paper I know I'll never need. There are kind of those around. But like, if everything's too neat, then I get a bit edgy. Musical silence. Silence. That really annoys me, that. I would love to have the radio on in the background. Can't, because I listen to it. Um, I've got a playlist of music with no words, because that sometimes helps um most often what i what i do is i end up having earphones on with the noise cancelling bit turned on but no music i wish it was different who's your favorite writer um so i knew this question was coming and i failed to think about it properly because i sort of freeze i think i'm gonna say i'm a big fan of um an American short story writer called Donald Barthelm, who wrote a lot in the 60s and 70s. His stuff was in, like, it was a sort of golden age of the short story in magazines like The New Yorker. Like, quite experimental stuff. Like, 
strange and funny. Um, and <laughs> in fact, I got to know of his work because like, I wrote a book of short stories a few years ago and somebody said to me, oh, you were you inspired by Donald Bartel. I was like, I've never heard of him. Um, which is like an amazing compliment. Um, but particularly why I'm saying that is because I think because my work writing is driven by mostly by clarity this idea of explaining this has a very specific it's like a teaching purpose almost like dropping an idea and helping people get it i think actually i'm always drawn back to fiction that does completely the opposite so actually I, i'm reading more and more poetry now don bartam's stuff is just weird and linguistically the completely completely opposite of clarity i just really enjoy that's a sort of total break from what I use words for at work. Finally, your best writing tip. So I think the reason I'm a writer is because writing is one of the few things in life, certainly the only thing that people actually pay me to do, that I will keep doing past the point when it's all right. You know, most things you get to good enough and you think, fine. That, But with writing, that when you think that's good... And then you give it another push. It's always rewarded. Always rewarded. Um, in fact, I did it last night in a, on a job with a, for a client. Um, and they wanted it by the evening. And I said, I'll sleep on it and I'll send it in the morning. And I almost said that just out of, just out of habit. Um, and then when I woke up this morning and looked at it again, I was saying, oh, of course, we could do this with it. I sort of bashed out. Um, I, like, there was three or four versions of the same thing exploring different routes and suddenly it's like there's a fifth one I've totally missed um, just so that it's like always when it's good enough put it aside and then give it another shot and it, you, it's always rewarded thank you for joining me on the podcast not at all thank you very much for having me If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you listen. And if you think the show deserves to continue, please, please, please leave a review while you're there. It'll really help get the show noticed. As ever, visit dorisandbertie.com for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life. Happy writing and bye till the next episode.